I think East and West, yes. And the third, probably indigenous nature-based wisdom needs to be part of it. Otherwise, civilization is definitely going to fail without that. Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance. Self-Pres Dominant, Social, Sexual Blind, Three Wing Two, with 371 Trifix and ENFP Cognitive Preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Hello, friends, and welcome back to The Blind Spot. I am really excited to be interviewing a fellow um, Enneagram teacher today, uh, Ben Campbell. Ben is dialing in from Maine, where he is a naturalist. I mean, he is going to teach us Enneagram in the wild. I mean, he just really is connected deeply to the natural world. And he is designing really exciting workshops and other programming. Ben is really inspirational to me because he's 27. So he's at the beginning of his career. And when I look back at where I was when I was 27, uh, 21 years ago, I'm just like, wow, I had like no consciousness whatsoever. I was very, very heavily entrenched in type and fixation and just doing the average three-wing two, self-pres, social, sexual blind thing. So um, I think it's amazing to see people waking up to the Enneagram at younger and younger ages. Uh, Ben's mother is also an Enneagram teacher. Uh, She's certified with the Enneagram Institute, and he has had the opportunity to grow up with a 0.4 mother who has really uh, cared deeply about him and helped him with his development. So that is always fun for me to see any parents out there. I really think that when we attend to our own growth and development, that we end up with like amazing children like Ben. And the fact that they work together just feels so sweet to me, probably because I have three boys that are 14, 16, and 18. And to imagine them being on their journey where Ben is now in 10 to 15 years just warms my heart. So I'm so excited to launch into this conversation with Ben. Ben identifies as coming from point six with a five wing, and he is self-pres, social, sexual blind, and he has a six nine, four, trifix. I'm noticing that this is like the hardest part of the interview for me Mm -hmm. is to get all of these labels correctly. And I think that is reflective of the fact that Ben and I hold labels somewhat lightly. So we're going to get that into our conversation today as well. But before I've gone on for too long, and it's already probably too late, I'm going to pause and let Ben go ahead and introduce himself and explain a little bit about his journey, how he found his way to his type and wing and stack and why he's identifying with his current trifix. So Ben, please. Uh, Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm Ben Campbell. So living in Portland, Maine. Um, Journey of discovering type wing trifix. Um, I mean, I learned about the Enneagram for the first time when I was 12 or 13. And I'd grown up as a pretty anxious kid. So um, the first thing that was just really enlightening about it was noticing that there are, there's actually a personality type about that um, in the, in the form of the six. Basically, that there were millions of other people who were struggled with the similar anxiety that I did. And um, 
it was nice to know that I wasn't crazy. Or if I was crazy, then there were millions of other people with the same kind of craziness. <laughs> so that's pretty much all I needed to know for the first five or six years of my Enneagram journey was just knowing I had this sick stuff and um, worked with my mom occasionally. Uh, she would, cause she was doing her training at the time and um, we'd kind of work on our work on my anxiety from an Enneagram perspective and trying to hold that a bit more loosely. Can I ask you a quick question about that, Ben? Yeah, um, sure. When your mom was doing her training and you identified as a six, was was that like, did your mom introduce you to the Enneagram? And because, you know, there's a lot of controversy as to whether we should type our kids or not. Mm -hmm. And um, like, at what age do you think your mom knew you were a six? How old were you when she was exposed to the Enneagram? Well, she was exposed when I was 12 or 13. So she started okay. talking to me about it right away when she came home. Um, probably because my I'm the oldest of three kids and um, my, my younger siblings weren't really ready to talk about it. And uh, I, don't, I don't think my dad was interested at the time. So she would talk to me and uh, she didn't type me that I remember. I think she thought I was a four at first because we were so similar and she's a four and she was just learning about it. Um, I remember being on a car ride with the Wisdom of the Enneagram book and she gave me that book and there's those little quizzes at the beginning of the chapter and she had me do the four chapter first and it came out sort of moderate, like I probably have some four qualities and then she had me take the little six one and that I remember looking at that quiz, like the memory of being in the car looking at that and I'm like, yeah, oh, this this is probably a, probably a six. Um, she was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So you had some knowing when you looked at it, because a lot of sixes have a harder time finding their way to type. Have you noticed that as a teacher, that nines and sixes, I think, have the hardest time? What do you think when you when people are starting on a typing journey? What have you noticed? Yeah, we joke about sixes will try on every other type before they settle into being a six. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if it might be more accurate to give it to people who are early teenagers when there's... The patterns are just a bit louder and there's less overthinking. Yeah, I'm noticing, you know, my son, who's currently 16, um, is a six with a five wing as well. Probably a six, three. I can't decide if it's a nine or a one fix. Mm -hmm. um, but I also was talking to my kids about the Enneagram when I was learning about it. And I actually am a three who tried on every type, except I never thought I was a five or a nine, but I think I thought I was every other type at one point, mm -hmm. which I, I ride the three, six arrow hard. I mean, there's so much about six that I also identify with. Um, but in looking at him you know, I thought he was a five. And then when he took an assessment, I think I gave him the ready, you know, he came out as a six. And, you know, some of the things that you and I have even talked about, um, he really seems to have more, be more of an attachment type than a rejection type, but has a lot of five energy. Um, was it pretty easy for you to see your five energy? Tell the listeners a little bit about what a six with a five wing looks like as opposed to that six with a seven wing. Mm-hmm. I didn't pay that much attention to the wing until I did the training after college. And for a while, I thought I was more of someone who had two wings. And they do say in the in the book that's possible, although not as common. Um, and I think that was coming from just having senior year of college and what seven wing I had was a bit more active in that area. Um, 
but looking at my life path as a whole, like before senior year of college and also after in the, what I've been focusing on, it's the fiveness is quite prominent. I mean, in terms of my Enneagram study, like I get really interested in like the esoteric things and how the Enneagram of process can map onto different things. Like and sort of where my thoughts are going in terms of how the Enneagram maps onto nature, not just to like, where does eight energy exist in nature? But like, if you put the process model, like with the striking a doe and the law of three and law of seven, and how does all that fit together? I get really interested in that. And I know most people I talk to not as interested in that kind of thing. Um, I'm super interested. We should probably talk about that on the episode. Okay. Awesome. Later. Yeah. <laughs> I do. So. I do have, have a few students who are into it, but some of uh -huh. them I, I start talking, they're like, what words are you even saying? Yeah. How is this relevant to me? It's heady. It's heady. So yeah. I don't know. It, we'll just preview. Heady. If listeners are not liking it, they can skip ahead. I'll put in the show notes <laughs> where Ben and I stop talking about it, but we'll, we'll circle back to that. So go ahead. Yeah. You know, um, six with a five wing though, energetically, I just want listeners to identify that yeah, you are projecting six, five wing energy. There's a certain groundedness. There's a certain, you know, fives are a withdrawn type, whereas sevens are an assertive type. Right. Um, you know, I have the seven fix and I am an assertive type as a three. So even the way you'll see that I'll try not to interrupt too much, but that's just kind <laughs> of what double uh -huh. assertive fixes do. And, um, yeah, that, that the and groundedness. I, I tend to not take up as much space as maybe I need to. So right there, practicing my interruption counter in, interruption is, is tricky. Um, and and that five wing and the six of the five wing, I've always identified with the archetypes of like professor, wizard, teacher, like old man. My friends call me Grandpa Camps, Grandpa Campbell. <laughs> it's just that like grandpa energy. My partner makes fun of me for acting like an old man, which is kind of funny, like, I act like an old man and I'm one of the youngest Enneagram teachers doing this kind of thing. So sort of this weird opposite energy is mixing. Lots of old soul energy. Yeah. But like that kind of withdrawn, like I'd like to be in my study and I want people to come to me with their questions and then leave, you know, like yeah. I'd love to engage with you. Like come, we'll talk about all the nerdy shit and then go home and let me have my space. Oh, yeah. That probably gets into the self-press stuff too. But Well, even last night I asked if we could do a sound check and, you know, I was joking around with Kevin and just being in this play space and I'm like, okay, Ben wants to do this sound check and do whatever he's going to do next. Like uh, your boundaries, I can tell, are probably pretty good. Like I sense those <laughs> self-press uh, six, five-wing boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I notice a bit more of the... Uh stress around it to do with self-prez like am i going to get to bed on time um am i going to have enough time for myself that in introversion time and it's a challenge sometimes to uh realize that maybe i don't have to do that all the time like maybe it's worth staying a bit later at the party or hanging out with a friend i haven't seen in a while but the thinking automatically goes to am i gonna be tired in the morning like i'm not very good at sleeping yada 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 yeah say a little more about that why aren't you good at sleeping I think it's part of being in the head center. Um, it was better when I wasn't on coffee, although I'm back on coffee these past couple of weeks. Uh, there's just more overthinking than average, I think. Concerns come up, you know, it's just easier to distract with um, screens or YouTube or, you know, it's it's following that five thing too. Like I know it's a five-ish thing to stay up really late. Learning something 
kind of useless. Like I'll watch YouTube videos about black holes until one in the morning. Like that's not even relevant to my work, but I just don't want to put it away. I'm like kind of fascinated. Once you put it away. So do you have a harder time falling asleep? But once you sleep, do you stay asleep? Uh, sort of. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an insomniac, but I'll wake up once in a while. It's, it's easier when I'm, I'm, um, in the same place as, as my partner. Like there's just more, she's a nine. So that really helps ground the whole energy in the room. Like it's easier to settle down and to sleep when there's someone else there. It would be nice to be a great sleeper, but I haven't unlocked that power yet. You know what? I love that you said that because I'm going to name that I think it's a self-pres attachment type thing that we sleep better when we have a partner next to us. I think it's part of the base. I think that it's something that regulates the nervous system. And I think that, you know, threes with that outward moving energy and sixes with, um, you know, attachment type stuff. I think that the nines, um, it'd be interesting to just hear nines in general and based on instinctual stack. Uh, you know, I just interviewed um, one of my um, old partners, Drew, who that was probably one of our biggest issues is that he's probably self-pres blind. So mm-hmm. a little body blind and he um, doesn't want to be touched like when he's sleeping. So, you know, mm-hmm. he'd like to ha- build a pillow wall so that I can't like invade in the night because just subconsciously I like, mm-hmm. I, you know, just glue on to a partner because it settles my nervous system. Mm-hmm. So actually just learning how to do that on my own, I tend to be the person that, you know, works a 13 hour day, completely hits a wall, crashes. But if I didn't have good self Self-care, I wake up three to four hours later and then I'm there with brain spins because the personality structure is just thinking usually about work the next day or whatever it is that's coming next. And that's sort of where my sleep struggle has been. Well, and I want to name that you radiate so much self-preservation dominant energy to me. And I think this nature thing has a lot to do with it. Do you want to speak to why you know you're self-preservation dominant? Well, it hasn't always seemed like self-pres is dominant, but there's like entire years where it very much seems so. And the more I settle into adult life, the more it seems like that is the one that's going to stick around. I think it's because of what I was touching on earlier. There is a preoccupation with making sure I have my space, my quiet, my introvert time, um, that there's going to be enough food. I have enough time to settle in to sleep don't like being out too late when i don't have to get kind of annoyed when um it's assumed that you know like everyone's going to go out to the party at 10 p.m i'm like go out to the party can we go out at like seven and come back at 10 because that I would be more comfortable yeah. for me um i i <laughs> i know this about myself so I'm, I'm happy to go out once in a while but it is against it's like pushing against the tide like yeah. That whole self-press thing. It's like, what are you doing? Bad idea. It's going to take you days to recover from this. Yeah. It's not going to take me days to recover from this, but that's the, that's the vibe there. And I think it's probably something that I know it's pissed off partners in the past. And, um, I think my friends give me a bit more leeway, but it definitely provokes some eye rolls like, oh yeah, grandpa's going to bed early again. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. So I actually, you're going to push back a little bit and you're one of the many people that think that I could be sexual dominant as opposed to self-preservation dominant. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
but like the thing I come back to is that I am so protective of my bedtime and I crash so hard, like early, um, really Mm -hmm. it feels to me like that self-preservation three workaholism that I get stuck in during the days. And my kids have actually given me a mug because, you know, we all have a lot of three energy in the family and we're all working Mm. really hard all day. And at the end of the day, we try to connect around, you know, a light television show. Like right now we're watching friends and, um, you know, I maybe have a 30 to 40 minute window before I'm like just asleep on the couch and like dying to go to bed. And they've given me this mug that says born to be wild, but only until 9 PM. So I just am (laughs) looking for, you know, all of the clubs that like open at four or 5 PM and like shut down Mm. at nine. And that would be my idea of a great party. I need, I need that mug and I need to live in the town where those clubs are. Yeah. I know. Right. (laughs) Cause like self-preservation people want to have fun. We just don't want to have it when we're supposed to be sleeping. Right. 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 And I don't, I don't know you nearly well enough to have a concrete opinion on what your instincts are. Um, I, and I wouldn't even say sexual dominant. It's just the buzziness that you have in our conversation so far. And maybe it's a minority of your time. But it's hard to imagine that being sexual blind. Right. Like putting it in the basement. Maybe it just comes out to play in certain situations. I feel like mine does. Yeah. It'll show up once in a while with the right person. If there's a if there's a spark, right, it'll come yeah. up because it's an instinct and that's what it's for. And maybe that's what I'm picking up on. Well, okay, this is what I think you're picking up on. I love the Enneagram. And I love talking about this stuff with people. Like this is a way that I access my sexual instinct and this is bringing sexual instinct into my work. So when I am doing this podcast, when I am hanging out with fellow seekers, um, whether that's in the Enneagram world or the nonviolent communication world or the meditation world, my soul lights up and I feel like the sexual instinct comes online. And this is one of the reasons why I'm on sabbatical right now, because my work as a medical doctor doing traditional medical care, and I've been doing this now for 20 years, Mm -hmm. is just, um, it got like so self-prezzy, like, dry and like boring. And I was no longer bringing any of that buzz to my patients. And when I started out, you know, when I was very sexual blind and the sexual instinct was asleep, I did have buzz in charge when I was doing my self-pres social thing because that felt good for my egoic agenda. But that is what led me to sort of blowing my life up a decade ago and kind of doing a reboot. And I think Mm -hmm. that this is what happens when we don't have the sexual instinct integrated into life. Because one of the things we were going to talk about is how uh, Grandpa Ben, you know, parties, you know, like you were talking about college and you were talking about how you wished you'd had your Enneagram training before you went to college and that you started actually right after you went to college because your experience of being a more traditional college student didn't really come online until your senior year. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, So I think that has to do with the sexual blind spot the most in that I had a lot of judgment around that dominant sexual energy that's in a lot of college situations in parties and dances and so on. And I was feeling that in high school too. First high school dance went to disgusted, right? Came back like, 
oh my God, I never want to go to one of those again. Went to college. What specifically <laughs> did you see though that you oh, like, were disgusted by? Like grinding, like just shirts, like falling off people, like making out, like overt sexual energy. I'm like, okay. I thought my idea of dance was like sort of 80s rom-com style where people are slow dancing and having fun and maybe there's a punch bowl and mm, not whatever so this sweet. Yeah. gross abomination is going on in there. Um, <laughs> so I had a lot of judgment and a lot of revulsion. Like, I don't want to be anywhere near that. And I would see my friends getting engaged in that. And like girls I had crushes on, I got on the floor, like <laughs> grinding up against other people. And I'm like, ugh, this is, I want nothing to do with this. Yeah. Um, and sort of similar experience first two years of college recognizing the sexual blind spot and realizing that that was just an imbalance and that people with a sexual blind spot have judgment about that like they get triggered by when that energy is dominant made me realize that oh this isn't this isn't this is just a different way of existing like this is part of the instinctual nature too and um trying to go out to parties and drink and do that high energy connecting buzzy thing realized I could do that without crossing any particular moral boundaries I might have had and just had fun and existed there alongside people doing things that I still didn't want to partake in but I didn't mind being around and I could have fun and what's the moral boundary is it like casual sex is that something that um at the time or I don't know maybe now was that um, one of the moral boundaries uh it, I'm, maybe moral is not the best word, but yeah, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to participate right. in that. Like the like casual, you wanted everything to be meaningful. Right. Casual hookups were like, why would I do that? Okay. So, all right. Now I'm going to flash back to college and um, I was like a crazy party girl. So <laughs> maybe, I don't know. I mean, I think that this is just how type shows up differently. Because if my trifix is three, seven, one, mm-hmm. I was very much like a work hard, play hard kind of girl. So, mm-hmm. you know, I went to Princeton. Um, my classes were kicking my ass. I mean, I studied. I felt like I worked so hard and I was so disciplined. For me, it was an energetic release because I carry so much energy in my body. And as a self-preservation dominant person, there was something about putting my body up against other bodies that was like such an energetic way to release. You know, you could say that that's sexual and it was, I think, I think that was how I was playing with the blind spot. But then, you know, it was only allowed out in certain contexts and then it went, got put away and it was like serious. Okay. Now we're going to get to work Mm -hmm. and vibe did not matter. I mean, when I flash back to college, like it was gross. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. you know, beer pong, like sliding down tap room floors. I mean, it was just every like cringy, you know, thing that you would imagine in college. And I just like loved it and didn't really care that other people had sort of this like, whoa, like opinion of me. I mean, I didn't like it. It would feel bad. And then that actually fueled my feminism. Like, why Mm -hmm. do I have to act like a sexually repressed woman? It just fueled Mm -hmm. some 0.1 righteous anger inside of me and just had me lean even more into embracing my sexuality, embracing how I wanted to show up and being like, fuck you all if you don't like it. You know, this podcast is a little like that. So yeah, yeah. Um, that's always been inside of me. And I 
talk about it as like my arrow to six as well. There's that anti-authoritarian, don't tell me how I'm supposed to be streak inside. Right. So do you still think I'm, you know, I don't know. Does that make a story for why I'm self-pressed social sexual blind? Because it really kind of was selectively brought out. It wasn't something that drove, like I never got myself in trouble with it. It was always Uh very uh, contained. I chose when it was allowed to come out. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that makes sense. My instincts will show up as they're needed. And it sounds like given your type pattern and situation and like difficult schoolwork needing a release from that, it, it just came up to help you get that out. And like you were, like what we were saying earlier, probably comes up in situations like this too, where you're getting that activation happening like it it needs to show up to have an engaging conversation with somebody on a podcast so here it is or there's the excitement of meeting somebody new and that's part of what the sexual instinct is for like mm-hmm. where is the charge where 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 can something new happen here 100% like so every time i get into a place where there's some creativity happening some mm-hmm. new birth some unknown something that feels a little bit scary I just think my sexual instinct is what rises up and fuels that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. And I mean, as I'm just naming, you know, after being married for 17 years and, you know, having three babies in four years and being pregnant or nursing for five years straight, like that was also why I think that I had once again so much tension trying to do work and motherhood the right way and a partner that was often out of town with a you know high powered banking consulting type job um that was why marriage just didn't fit me because my sexual instinct was what sort of came up to release the tension of the life that i was living in so what i'm discovering now after 10 years of personal growth work is do i want to fall into that egoic pattern of the self pressed social 3 where i work so hard that then sexual instinctual energy comes out in a way that absolutely can damage self-pres needs, absolutely can damage social needs. And, you know, now I sort of respect the power of it. And I'm a lot mm-hmm. more familiar that, oh, this is what's here. Mm-hmm. And it actually, um, it, I, I now honor it and I want to invite it into my field in a way that feels generative and obviously the sexual instinct is always edgy, but I think right. that we need it. So how um, have you connected with your blind spot? Tell us a little bit about your blind spot work. So first thing I did was learning how to dance and not even Mm. dancing at parties, just like putting on music with a beat and dancing. I remember um, hearing Russ talk about like, if you're sexual blind, you're doing the dishes, like don't go put on Mozart, like put on some Latin music or something and swing your hips around while you're doing that. And I took that to heart and to this day, every I forget to do it. I forget how much it changes my energy when I dance for five minutes. But when I do it before a call or something, um, or b- before a class, like the way I show up, I don't show up like a crazy person. Like maybe my fear is like if I do this, I'll be I'll be crazy forever. No, it's like it's actually more <laughs> balanced. I'm more awake. Yeah, uh, I feel a little more excited and alive. 
Um, and these days, where it where it comes naturally to me and feels like something I want to do is being edgy around uh, like taking trips or making taking myself on retreats. So, mm. like last year, and I'm doing it again this year. I went to a little island off the coast of Maine called Monhegan Island, and I mm-hmm. went in the winter when nobody goes there. And mm-hmm. I decided I'm not going to use my phone at all, and I'm just going to spend time like five days on the rocks in the November air, like by the ocean and wow, just like stay there and kind of merge with the land. Like that feels like where my sexual instinct comes up in a lot of ways. It's really wanting to merge into that experience of nature. And also it's like pushing boundaries, like going out in terrible weather where people don't go. Yeah, um, totally. There's rocks, waves, wind, uh, hanging out with the crows crawling under boulders that I'm worried I'm going to fall on me. I'm playing with my sick stuff too, that fear. Oh yeah. Um, and that, those are really invigorating. Um, last year was five days. I think this year I'm going to go for 10 days, which feels like a lot. Um, That's amazing. Can I ask you a question? Um, yeah. So I'm also really taking a deep dive into the Jungian cognitive functions. The mm. Myers-Briggs is what some people know it as. Yep. Um, do I remember that you said you thought you might be INFJ? I think that's right. But I think yeah. I've gotten three or four different results. So Okay. Okay. Um, I would not be surprised if you were INFJ. And do you mind if I do a little... Um, Jungian or Myers-Briggs insert here, because I think that it completely makes sense, like what you're doing. So if we look at your INFJ structure, your lead function is introverted intuition, which means that you are good at foreseeing implications, transformations, and likely effects, which really makes sense that that also fits with your six, five wing structure. Because of course, if you're seeing implications, transformations, and likely effects that anybody without this cognitive structure doesn't actually see, of course, you're going to be anxious in your sick structure because like, there's probably good reason to worry about stuff that other people can just like, not see, not know, Um, like Mm -hmm. introverted intuition is actually in my subconscious, which means I've had to develop that. So I love INFJs Mm -hmm. because they help me to integrate that high side of six where I slow down enough to realize, hmm, maybe this Mm -hmm. isn't going to necessarily be as awesome as my ENFP, which is extroverted intuition, can just leap over that more cautious side of things. So extroverted and introverted intuition are very balancing functions, which is why ENFPs and INFJs often vibe. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. 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 And I'm now circling back around to extroverted sensing, which is what Ben is talking about. This is the three-year-old function for the INFJ. And what he's talking about with this, let me go sit on cold rocks in November in Maine and try to survive for a week or however long it is. This requires experiencing and acting in the immediate context. So it gives Ben's brain a break from, you know, doing what his mind naturally does, which is foreseeing implications, transformations, Mm -hmm. likely effects, like in the future, which can lead the 0.6 structure when it's overused to get a little bit into crazy land. And so if we can drop into the body, 
into extroverted sensing, which is the three-year-old function that you have to be more conscious about and more intentional about, you're now balancing out this ability to also experience and act in the immediate context, not get lost in the mind. And according to the Jungian analysis, this is going to be your gateway into your unconscious. So it completely makes sense that you just have this intuitive knowing because of your sixth structure, that this is a great way for you to also utilize your sexual instinct because your sexual instinct is probably like a three-year-old function since you're self-pressed social. And so you're leveraging both your three-year-old cognitive function and your sexual instinct to take you into the vast unknown. How is that landing? Well, I don't know anything about the Jungian model. So all of what you said is new, um, but it tracks with what I know about my Enneagram constellation and that there's my weakest type energies in me are eight and three, mm-hmm. and then maybe seven after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. Eight is that poster child for immediacy, right? That's one of the essence qualities, immediacy, aliveness. I'm going to act right now and be in my strength. And yes. um, three is sort of that heart centered immediacy like i'm taking my own journey and self seriously like i'm i'm gonna and have an inherent knowing about what's going to light me up and a willingness to go and do that and be a leader also and put myself out there so cultivating the three and the eight have been deliberate strategies that i've tried to help balance out my typical patterns and that's why we need community Because we're not going to all be good at everything. And so we're looking at type and structure, not to keep ourselves in boxes, but to see the box that we're in and start Mm -hmm. looking at things that we might think we know something about, but we're actually pretty blind to. Will you launch into this, Ben? Like you and I both, um, you know, there are different spectrums in the Enneagram world where certain teachers are very, very fixated on you have to know your type. And if I think I know what your type and you don't, like I should tell you and you've got to know your stack and it's really important versus the other end of the spectrum where people hold type and stack and really loosely and it's all part of the journey. Where do you put yourself and why? Well, of course you need to know your type because at a certain point you're just hoodwinking yourself, right? Like it's easy to spiritually bypass if you've mistyped yourself. Like if I'm, if I were actually a three and I've been thinking I'm a six this whole time, I'm dodging the things that I actually need to look at. But even though you want to get there eventually, I think a teacher typing a student um, before they're ready is unhelpful. Um, before so the student when I'm is ready for this to student, be typed, yeah. 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 Uh, so I tend to hold it quite loosely in my teaching. I let people discover on their own time. Um, we had one student uh, a couple of years ago who thought she was a two for about a year and then realized she was a seven. And it was this massive revelation. And my mom and I had both been working with her. We both had suspicions, but we didn't really push her on it until she had a discovery. And it made for some rich discussions. It was like the focus of the course for a couple of weeks because people were so curious about her process of discovering that. And I think that kind of thing is really cool. I also think, especially with folks who are trying to figure out whether they're, for example, two with a three wing or three with a two wing. I was just working with someone yesterday. They feel really like they're smack in the middle. And 
to me, when you're beginning your journey, it, it's going to be just as useful to work on either one because you've got issues in both of them. So yes. what's the loudest issue? What's getting you in trouble? You know, what's messing with your life? What's keeping you from being present? Work on that and then work on the next thing that comes up. And eventually you're probably going to settle into, okay, yeah, this is my home base. But some people are really, really strong in two types. And that just means they have two different types of work to do. So I don't get too hung up on needing to type someone in the first conversation or even in the first month. It's uh, I wouldn't want to do that because it feels like robbing someone of their journey. I might ask challenging questions and I'll name what I'm observing about someone in terms of, oh, that seems like a sexy thing to do. Um, but I'm not going to say, yeah, you're definitely this. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, I, as somebody who tried on so many different types and so many different stacks, I know that there was super rich learning for me. So it would feel really inauthentic to be talking to people and saying, oh, no, this is this is what you are. And for those of you that listened to the interview that I did with Karen and Sebastian, you know, we went into the interview um, thinking that Karen was one stack. And then at the end, Karen and I had conversations. And if you listen to that episode, you'll see how we sort of unpacked that maybe she's this other stack. And, you know, Karen and I are having a lot of fun exploring that and plan to do a follow-up episode with her new awarenesses with just trying on a different stack. And maybe she'll go back to um, identifying as a sexual nine instead of a social nine. And maybe that's where she is right now. I agree with you that I think there's something to learn with whatever point we're at and creating an environment where we both hold and mirror, I think is what's really supportive for somebody committed to a growth journey. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like when we get really fixated on like, I want this person to know that they're this, or like the person is like, I am not that, you know, I guess we learn a lot about resistance in that context. Mm -hmm. We learn a lot about object relations. We learn a lot about what's creating um, what it feels like aggressive and maybe even violent energy, which Mm -hmm. I don't think we should shy away from. Like, let's look at you know, what does piss us off? What does trigger us? Like, why am I either feeling like it's so important that this person know, or it's so important that, you know, teacher, I'm not that, you know, it's, it's an interesting, if we just drop back from who's right and who's wrong and look at the dynamic that's playing out, I think that gives us a lot of opportunity for learning. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Okay. So, You shared with me, Ben, that you learned a lot about yourself when you went through a breakup. Would you be willing to tell us a little bit about that relationship and your experience of the breakup? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's less so um, Enneagram and more just personal development or life stage transition, um, I think. So this might come from being an attachment type. And also, I'm not sure if my trifix is 694 or 692. I have a lot of two going on, which especially comes up in intimate partnerships. So for probably most of my romantic history, I would get really, really involved with the person that I was interested in. Um, And like sort of the classic giving my whole self to them, my whole world is starting to revolve around them. Things move too way too fast to the point where I might be freaking out the other person. And I eventually got into a relationship with someone who seemed 
perfect. Like there was just, there was a lot of, you know, she was interested in like spirituality. She knew what the Enneagram was. I'd been having, was just coming out of a relationship where the person didn't know anything about that. And I and how was old were really, you at this time? I was 23, mm-hmm. I think. Okay. 24. So only three or four years ago. So basically wound up with someone who seemed perfect and we broke up within a month. And what type is I, she? I think she was also a two. Okay. Um, that was pretty, that felt soul shattering. Like it was a brutal breakup, even though it was not the end of the longest relationship, just because it was like the realization of what I thought a relationship was meant to be like that whole fantasy that yeah. idealized imaginary other. I was like, this is the person. Turns out that wasn't the person. And the breakthrough that happened was sort of a direct understanding of, um, I don't know if you've uh, read the book, The Eden Project. Um, no. It's like In Search of the Magical Other. It's about our the romantic quest. It's sort of realizing the myth of that in real time. And um, I guess it was realizing that love is not what the fantasies of it seem to be and that it's a lot quieter than that. Yeah. Um, The partnership I have with my current partner is really genuine. Didn't have the kind of explosive beginning. It was more of a gradual build, but there's actually nine, right? His partner's a nine. Yeah. There's actually trust there and respect and developing something together. And I was challenged at the beginning because that kind of fiery spark I'd come to expect I wasn't feeling, but realized there was something I actually wanted and needed a lot more. And that felt like a big maturing moment. And I sort of hold held fast to that. And it's been amazing to stick with that. Um so I guess I could say I figured out what uh, love actually is and seeing the fantasies continue to play out in other people, like makes my heart go out to them. Like that I can, it, it was like blinders just coming off, like seeing, seeing the object relation, like so directly, like this is a fantasy. There is yeah. a projection of what I want onto this other person and letting that just come away and being with someone who is not perfect and is not a fantasy, but is you're choosing genuinely their loving. stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I, I think that huh, uh, Dan Savage, do you know, Dan Savage, he's a relationship mm-hmm. expert and he has a YouTube video that I will invite everybody to watch. It's he's funny. He's like really funny. And it's called the Google, the price of admission, Dan Savage relationships. Um, he basically says that if you are looking for long-term committed partnership, that there's a price of admission and that if you keep on getting disappointed, the problem is probably not with all the other people. The problem is probably with you because you have to really identify like what are your deal breakers. And he says that you need to be able to keep those on one hand. Like if Ah, your things you will not tolerate in another human being go beyond five, then just wait for a robot. 
because then you can program them to have the features you want. And when you no longer like the program, you can just, you know, have it upgraded. But, you know, in real relationships, there's a price of admission. And he talks about if you want to ride this amazing ride, you have to go and wait oftentimes like two or three hours in line before you get that 90 second experience. And, you know, a long term committed relationship has its beautiful moments, but there's a price of admission. There are a lot of times when you're just standing around in line and you're not actually on the ride. And if we look at the ratio of the time that we're kind of doing the less sexy, awesome part of living life together, there's a lot more standing around in line than there is actually being on the ride. So you actually have to get practiced at dealing with what comes up for you when you're standing in the line. And yeah, and just love (laughs) having it be someone who you love standing in line with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what this feels like. And the price of admission, I think to put that in a nutshell, the price of admission is the fantasy. Like you have to give that up, Mm. right? That idealized other, the perfect person. Um, well, now I'm resisting because I like fantasies. You know, I, I have a seven sure. fix. So yeah. I'm just like, yes, you're right. And I, it just makes me so sad. I don't want to experience the sadness of that truth, Ben. So what if we have our fantasy, but we hold it consciously and just acknowledge it is a fantasy and get good at dealing with the moment by moment disappointment that you experience when the person is not showing up as your fantasy? Is that a possibility for the sevens out there that just hate what you said? <laughs> I think so. I, I also think there's um, there are a lot of amazing things that will happen that the seven's not anticipating, right? Yes, of seven, seven misses the most beautiful things by looking for something else. You are and 100% right. If yeah. I'm just with this person sitting on the couch and actually with them and not wishing they were somebody else, then yeah. there's a lot of like that that's where the that's where the real stuff is right that's i think that's part of what sobriety is yeah like that and seven that's virtue that's bringing extroverted sensing online what is the life force what is the beauty what is the amazing pleasure of this moment right now you know at this time like a lot of sevens are also enfps like mm-hmm. this is really hard it's in the subconscious and we probably need a lot of support to keep bringing that online so this is actually an area that i'm so curious about because um yeah we love our sevens like they're also fun but how do we help them stay when every like neuron in their body like wants to flee, you know, that's the work of the seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And my strategy was always be a self-press three and just work, work, work and dissociate and numb from what's not feeling fun. And then that will catch up with you too. Yeah. So I'm just sitting here a little mind blown, Ben, that you have all of these awarenesses at 27 and at 48, I'm just like starting to touch in on them. And I just want to name that this is your superpower of introverted intuition, where from a relational frame, you foresee implications, transformations, likely effects of hanging your expectations on a relationship that's built on fantasy. So, you know, that um, is just really 
cool for me to see. And I was sort of sending out, what do we do for our poor sevens? What do we do for our people who are sexual dominant? And like, this is the driving feature of their personality structure. Like, um, I think that they're going to need to work this edge as well. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of wondering if part of my particular issue, because I had trouble with relationships for a long time, was that my sexual instinct was blind or underdeveloped? And the idea of being able to tell when someone is attracted to me, for example, still is completely baffles me. That that you could know when someone's attracted to you, I don't understand that. And um, sexual dominant folks, there's probably two interpretations there, where they're always looking for that charge, and when the charge runs out, they leave and look for the new charge. I think that probably happens a lot. also probably think that with a sexual instinct that's well cultivated, that Russ has talked about this, that when it's calibrated properly, you're naturally drawn to the people who are going to be a good match for you. Mm-hmm. And so it's a matter of trusting that, but then letting your other instincts play in, like the social bonding, what's going to work here long time or long, long term. And um, self-pres, the stability we can find together in a partnership, those three different kinds of instinct love, bringing all of those in. So not so much that I need to turn off the sexual instinct, like that's a blessing. I'm I'm envious of you people, like nice to know who's going to be a good match. Just have that instinctive knowing. Um, took me a while to figure that out. But then bring in these other things. So the sexual, especially if you find someone else who's also sexual dominant, so that doesn't burn itself out you know, conscious effort of bringing in these other things too might help. Yeah. And I just want to name that I think the sexually instinctual dominant people, yeah, they're really good at figuring out this is going to be chemistry. Like this is going, here's magnetism, like here's charge. But I want to name that they're going to struggle either with social or self-pres and that's why I think I've actually been a serial monogamist because since I'm self-pressed mm-hmm. social, it's like I can live without my sexual for years, you know, before mm-hmm. it starts to come into the forefront. I'm really curious to see how people, you know, the sexual energy, unless it's being continually fed by some kind of frustration, because typically it's... um there's, it's about polarity, you know, there's going to be some kind of push pull, some kind of tension in the sexual instinctual field. Whereas when you're in a self-pressed social field, or a social self-pressed field, it's much more relaxed and comfortable. It has a rhythm, it has a base, it has more predictability. So once again, um, here's the law of three, and we're going to have to do a different episode on striking the dough because I don't think we're going to have time for it in this one. Mm -hmm. But um, this is where the growth happens is how can I just start to be more conscious of what I'm not attending to and bring that in before it creates a problem for me in my life. Well, Ben, this has been such an amazing initial conversation, and I want to make sure that we have time at the end to talk about your um, self-pres social superpower of bringing the Enneagram into the wild and into nature. And would you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing and how people can find out more information and get involved with you? Yeah, sure. So this is a territory I've been moving into gradually, but... 
my website now is wildenneagram.com. And we'll so, put that in the show notes. So anybody yeah. who wants that, you'll have access. Yeah. So I'm really trying to integrate the Enneagram into nature. And uh, it feels like it, the time is ripe to do that. It's always kind of baffled me how going to trainings, um, nature is at most a backdrop to what's happening. Like we might be doing it in a beautiful setting, but the workshops are either inside or they're just under a tent and you go, you can go hang out in nature to go take a break. I'm like, well, what about engaging with that? So my um, my hot take, I guess, on the Enneagram is that that, that famous phrase that Grajeev said around how the wisdom of the East needs to come together with the knowledge, creative energy of the West, um, that that's necessary for civilization to continue. I think he was missing something because first of all, that's only two things. And law of three would imply that there needs to be a third. And also he was leaving out at least three continents. So I think East and West, yes. And the third, probably indigenous na nature-based mm. wisdom needs to be yeah. part of it. Otherwise, civilization is definitely going to fail without that. And I think we're finally waking up to the truth of that collectively. So I want to bring Enneagram people into nature, like bringing these awareness, bringing the types, bringing how the Enneagram symbol works in nature and using that not just as a pretty place to go hang out and do our work, but actually to engage with the more than human world, like have interspecies dialogues, um, go out on a wander in nature with the eight of yourself and see what is the eight in you drawn to, or what is the four in you drawn to out here, or what calls to you? Where does eight energy seem to exist out there in the wild? And let that, let that bring you there. And a lot of this is coming from work I've done with Animus Valley. They, uh, they do like soul craft, vision quest retreats, things like that. And they do this nature-based work where you go out on wanders and let yourself be called. And you like deliberately talk to and sit with rocks and streams and birds and bears and whatever you find out there. And I, I, I've been in these both of these worlds for six years or so, and I want them to come together. And I'm trying to do that. So I'm, I'm, I've started a course that's for that. It's called Living the Vision. Um, I have my current group of guinea pigs there trying to help me figure this out. Uh, hopefully next year, that'll be more open to other folks. And um, in the spring, I'm going to be doing in-person retreats in Maine to like combine Enneagram teaching with uh, the indigenous wisdom and other nature-based practices I've learned in MS Valley and also at the Maine Primitive Skills School, uh, which is in a lineage of um, indigenous apache teaching actually and it was passed on with the intention of being shared to the um uh wider western audience to restore this wisdom of how do we be good stewards good caretakers and do our personal growth at the same time all those things can come together feels like there's a lot of energy in there a lot of potential and it's we're just kind of discovering what that might be so that's what i'm about that's what i'm trying to write about practice teach it sneaks into my teaching even when i'm not explicitly doing a nature-based workshop but wow my whole body is like tingling and feels electrified while i listen to you talk about that like mm -hmm. there is 
like so much excitement. Like I 100% want to do one of your nature retreats now, um, knowing that this extroverted sensing is like my eighth cognitive function. Like mm-hmm. this is where we need community. Like I so long for those types of experiences and I will never lead those types of experiences. Everybody would die. Like even <laughs> if we were like, you know, 20 yeah, feet yeah. from somewhere. So yeah. like knowing that this is your three-year-old function, I think that this is also going to be one of your superpowers. And I just feel so excited that you're going to bring this work to the community. And what I want this platform to be is also for us to know like what everybody is doing out there Mm -hmm. and what kind of resources are you looking for? If people are as excited as I am about what you're doing, how might they support you? Have you thought at all about what you could ask for from the collective? Well, I think there's probably a hunger and people who've gone to um, Enneagram retreats and are like wanting this nature piece. I think that's a natural thing. Humans want to be connected in that way. And really biggest thing is just knowing it exists. And that also knowing that Maine exists, like Maine is kind of up in this corner, but it's amazing up here. I'm going for the first time in October. I'm so excited. Oh, awesome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I, I will be here all all of October. Um, Mm. That's when I'm doing the second Monhegan retreat also. Wow. Um, but yeah, just like let people know it exists. Um, the online course, it, the, the Living the Vision course, and I'm going to figure out how to uh, bring more people into that. That's obviously worldwide because um, it's virtual. So let people know it exists. Let Wild Enneagram, like let people know Wild Enneagram exists. That's a thing. There's someone who's trying to do this. Yeah. Um, if other folks are interested in that, like reach out to me. I want to talk to you. Yeah. Because I can't, I'm not coming up with this all on my own. I'm trying to unearth traditions and link schools together and um, all that. So collaboration would be awesome. And this is where my three one comes online because I like to execute on things. So I'm also imagining, and I'm like bold enough to say, send Ben money. I bet you need money (laughs) to like, you know, do, you know, enact this vision. If there's somebody out there that's really excited and you have already established your career and you want to give back in some way, I just think supporting somebody like Ben, um, yeah. Like call him if you have money, call him if you have administrative (laughs) skills, like support, Mm. like you can do like the nitty gritty stuff that Ben might not enjoy as much so that you can free your mind and, you know, do the teaching. Does that all sound like it would be a wonderful gift? I mean, that would be amazing. And I can say something specific that that money would be for also is in acquiring land here that Mm. I would protect from development and use as a space to do these retreats so at most building like primitive shelters like out of trees like wood things that will deteriorate over time over like 100 years they'll be livable but not create more carbon footprint or anything and um i'm i'm in love with the landscape here i want to protect it uh and I want there to be a relationship between people and place and if there's a place that i can go to and live over time and bring folks to and do practices there like ceremonies to honor the land plant new trees uh help protect what's there have a community and resources to do that would be fantastic and Mm. obviously land is expensive and i'm at the beginning of my career so it's um hard to secure that kind of thing right now and i'm relying on finding cheap places that let me do workshops on their sites like the one in the spring is going to be at a summer camp but it would be awesome to have a dedicated place there where i can like or where we as a community can decide 
okay, we want to plant new chestnut trees or something or walnut trees or build permaculture gardens and ways to preserve and purify water, things like that, that are all going to tie into our Enneagram spiritual self-development work. Well, and like my point three is always vibrating around like passion, purpose, and mission. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I think of a self-pressed social six, like my um, belief that you know, given the resources and the ability to develop this vision that you would loyally work to do everything that you have in your gifts to like, that's where I see your sexual instinct for sure would come online. Like, I bet that mm. would be so exciting. And, you know, when you get a six activated into the right zone, like you guys are unstoppable. Like the amount of energy you guys connect with and the things that you all accomplish. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just really awe inspiring to me. So thank you for sharing your vision and your dream. That's really exciting. Thank you. And thank you for your emphatic support of it as well. Mm. Well, thanks, Ben. This has been a wonderful conversation. We're definitely going to have to schedule another one. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while SNSMD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.